Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Chelsea tonight. And our topic is the sorting after death. If you've been with us and it hasn't been, it's not necessary for you to have been with us, we talked two weeks ago about the Heaven Project and then last week talked about Hell. And so tonight we're talking about what Swedenborg refers to as the world of spirits, which is a place where we're sorted out after we die. And we'll be exploring this sorting. What's the basis of this sorting? It's something that a lot of people have questions about and something that a lot of people think Scripture says nothing about. And I want to argue tonight that it says a lot about it, actually. So I invite you to join me on that journey and let's open with a prayer. Shall we, good friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. We thank you, Lord, for bowing the heavens and coming down into our world, showing us who you are. You are the Word made flesh. We pray for your presence among us tonight as we search the pages of your Word in search of truth about your love, your mercy, your kindness. Amen. Amen. Thank you, friends. Sending love out to the, those of you watching online those getting the phone call from up in Canada, those on the podcast, and people who are here in the room. So nice to be with you. And let me read a little bit, I haven't done this for a while, about who we are. Spirit and Life Bible Study looks at the Bible through a Swedenborgian lens, meaning in alignment with the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, born 1688, died 1772. The name Spirit and Life comes from Jesus himself, who says that his words are spirit, and they are life, John 6.63. Spirit, we take to mean that his words have a spiritual and heavenly meaning and purpose, and life, meaning that his words are alive and aim to bring us to life by teaching us how we are to live if we wish to become spiritual and heavenly ourselves. And since Jesus is the Word made flesh, John 1.14, what he says of his words, we take to apply to all the words of the Bible. They all teach who he is and how to get from the life of hell to the life of heaven. Thank you, friends. All right, now the sorting after death. There are arguably more misconceptions about life after death than anything else, I would say, in Christianity and lots of confusion in other religions as well. So I want to flash through a couple of points that are very important to understanding the basis of this. Um, would you turn in the Old Testament... After the five books of Moses, you get Joshua, Judges, and then 1 Samuel. Could you get to 1 Samuel? I want to flash through some scriptures really quickly at the beginning. These are ones that may be familiar to you. They stand out to me. People, uh, there's this general idea floating around that someday there'll be a rapture. There's an idea that after people die, they... Uh, are in some limbo or some semi-conscious or unconscious state waiting the last judgment, the day when they will come back into the flesh, be resurrected in their bodies, and uh, see Jesus here back in the world in the second coming. Um, uh, these are all based on scriptures, but uh, they're not scriptures rightly divided uh, because there's also evidence in scripture that our survival of death is immediate, personal, and permanent. And I wanted to flash through some points about that because that's very important to what we're talking about tonight. In 1 Samuel 28, uh, to cut the story down, uh, Saul goes to see this medium because he wants to know why the Lord isn't speaking to him anymore. And he sees a familiar, he asks, 
uh, he, he wants to see Samuel. Samuel's a prophet who had died recently. And Samuel comes up. He's still wearing the same kind of clothes. Now, if we go into the grave and we just wait for the last judgment, what is Samuel doing alive and talking and being the same way he was in this world? He chides and upbraids Saul, says, if the Lord's not speaking to you, you really think I'm going to tell you anything valuable? And, and, uh, and look at what he says in verse 19 here. 1 Samuel 28. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. You see, tomorrow you and your sons will be... So what does that mean? It means several things. That Samuel is alive in another world, in the afterlife, and he's saying to Saul and his sons that they are going to die because tomorrow you're going to be with me. So do you see what I mean? I conclude two things from that, that survival of death is immediate and it's personal. Like there will still be a Saul. There will still be his sons. And they will be with the person who's still called Samuel, wears the same kind of clothes he used to wear. There are scriptures that show that survival of death is immediate, personal, and permanent. Let's look at another one in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David has a child, and his child is sickly, and finally the child dies. And when the child dies in 2 Samuel 12, verse 23, this is what David says about his child. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Mm. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. You see, two couple of things here. There's, that child will still exist in the spiritual world, which is very comforting to parents who've lost you know, a child. And David is very clear. There's not a reincarnation. The child is not, it's not going to come back. It's a one-way street. When David dies, he's going to go be with the son. He shall not return to me. I shall go to him. He, he won't return to me. Uh, so these are the kind of scriptures where I get this idea that survival of death is immediate, personal, and permanent. Let's look in the New Testament at the Gospel of Luke. Again, we're just sort of laying a foundation here real quick. But Luke 16 is worth looking at a little bit because uh, it's important in several ways tonight. So let's read this at a little more length. Luke 16, starting at the 19th verse, this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was the... So it was that the beggar died. The beggar died. So Lazarus died. And what happened to him? Did he stay in the tomb for thousands of years awaiting the last judgment? And was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Mm. He was immediately taken to where, well, wait a minute. I thought Abraham should be waiting somewhere for the last judgment too. No, there's an Abraham, just like there's a Samuel. Abraham's right up there. And Lazarus is taken immediately at death. He's taken up to Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and, and Hades saw... Hades is another word for hell. In the old King James, it just says hell straight up. And so what happened to the rich man? Did he wait somewhere forever? No, he went right to hell. Lazarus went right to heaven immediately. And there was still a Lazarus. There was still a rich man. There was still an Abraham. 
This is the picture that Jesus is giving us of life after death. And Swedenborg talks about this, even though it's a parable, he says this has lots of information about life after death in it. Go on. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And here's an important moment for our evening tonight. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed. There's a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell. This is very important for our topic tonight. Uh, there's a great gulf fixed. They don't just sort of they're not next door neighbors. Heaven and hell aren't, aren't contiguous with each other. There's a great gulf fixed between them. And why is that? So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Okay, part of the function of that great gulf is to keep the trap, you know, keep the people in hell in hell, keep the people in heaven in heaven. Go on. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So do you see part of what that's saying is that the whole purpose of Moses and the prophets is to tell people information that will help them after death. Right? It's about getting you to heaven and keeping you from hell. Go on. And he said, No, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And there's the R word, they will repent. Uh, because he knows he's in hell and he knows that what his brothers need is repentance. That's the only way they'll get to heaven. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they, will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Mm. Okay, and let's turn to Luke 23. We're just flashing through here. And, and when Jesus is on the cross, he's crucified with two criminals, and one of them is reviling him as other people are abusing Jesus in the last moment of his life. And uh, then... The uh, this other criminal starts speaking against the uh, the other criminal. Look at verse forty there, in Luke twenty three. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, "Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong." And then he turns to Jesus, and what does he say? Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now this is extremely important because this would have been, if that other teaching had been true, this would have been the perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, just be patient. It may take a few thousand years, but your call is very important to us. We will be with you <laughs> at some point here. But no, what he says, it, you're talking about the kingdom. That's happening for you today. You see, the kingdom happens at the moment of our death. The criminal was dying that day. So that was his day of the kingdom. For other people, it's going to be in a different day. 
because people die on different days. But that's a very important scripture. And you notice that what he says, so it says immediate, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Not even tomorrow. It's today. Number two, there's still going to be a Jesus. There's still going to be a criminal. They won't have disappeared into protoplasm or some vapor or something. You know, they, they'll still have the same personalities and be the same people. Today you will be with me in paradise, and that's what awaits them uh, immediately after death. That is the Lord coming in his kingdom. That is the Lord's kingdom. Okay, and just a couple more here. Turn to the right. Go through John and Acts and Romans. Let's get to 1 Corinthians 15. Much misunderstood passage, very powerful passage. I just want to read toward the end here where Paul, starting in the 51st verse, verse 51, uh, Paul is talking about life after death. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must be put, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And then this final statement here. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Yes, now listen to that. So you see, and now what's been much understood is that people think that that last trumpet is going to be some day of the last judgment, you know, thousands of years hence or something. It's been much predicted over the last couple of hundred years. It has a persistent habit of not happening. And Swedenborg says why it won't happen, because it doesn't happen in this world. We're just the waiting room. You know, there's a high turnover in here. If you want to talk to everybody, get them in the other world where they all are. And um, so what if, just as he remember me in your kingdom, and he says, today, you know, surely I, I say to you, today. So the kingdom is, is the very day of our death. And I would say that in the twinkling, in a moment, in the twinkling of night, at the last trumpet, that's the last trumpet for each one of us. Each one of us has that moment of death. And that's the moment where we are changed. Now, if you just read it that way, which is not a huge leap, I don't think, all of a sudden, Scripture makes sense with the near-death experience, which millions of people have had, where there's a continuation of life and they're having transcendent experiences immediately. They see, um, a lot of them see a being of love and, and light, you know, like the embodiment of love or whatever. Uh, well, if this is what it's talking about, where we're changed in the twinkling of an eye, and where you were wearing this corruptible flesh, all of a sudden you're incorruptible. You're in a spiritual body, which it talked about just moments ago in this same chapter. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body and so on. And, uh, and look to the right, if you will, friends, and go till you hit the Hebrews. It's fairly large, so it uh, should be findable. And try Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Uh, this is just a subordinate clause, but it's a very important subordinate clause. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. There's our subordinate clause. So if you remove the as, because it says, as that, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and so on. And so 
you see what that clause is saying. It is appointed to man once to die, and then the judgment. Boom. It didn't say thousands of years later. Once to die, then the judgment. So that's the last trumpet. That's where you're changed, and that's where the, the, the judgment happens after that. So there's a term in Scripture, the day of judgment. Day means a state. Uh, and so it's that state in which a kind of a judgment or a sorting occurs. And so what I'm arguing in this, and this is what Swedenborg says based on his spiritual experiences and his reading of Scripture, is that survival of death is immediate, personal, and permanent, and we go into a sorting phase that's called the judgment. Now, let's read some parables about sorting. I am thinking, this is one we just read last week. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13, which is full of these wonderful parables. It even talks about how the Lord spoke in parables all the time. And uh, let's look at some of these parables. Let, let's start at verse 24 in Matthew 13. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. So the topic here is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the life after death. This is what we're talking about. This is what the life, this is how he's drawing a comparison for them about the life after death. Remember, he said to that person, he said, you know, remember me in your kingdom. And he said, well, that's today. Like you go, you know, when we die, boom, we're, we're right there. So uh, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like someone who sows this good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Tares being weeds. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. Aha, uh -huh. you see they look identical until they come to fruit. It's, it's when they come to fruit you can tell the difference. Go on. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Mm. He said to them, an enemy has done this. What, what a, uh, just that phrase just haunts me. An enemy has done this. So yeah. many things about life, uh, you know, that wasn't the Lord's will. It wasn't the Lord's will that it's this way. An enemy has does, done this. Go on. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Mm. But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, and mm. bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, now that, that's profound. Um, okay, now, so what is this? Uh, people would generally interpret this as meaning the harvest is going to be some eventual day of the last judgment. Uh, but if you take that time of harvest as being the time when we pass from this world into the next world, we, we grow together until that point. And then there are these reapers who are um, the angels. When he explains it later, he says the reapers are angels. Hmm. Uh, and he, he does say down below there that the harvest is the end of the age, but what age, what, you know, that's our age, that's the individual's age, I'm arguing. And so... Uh, when they, they grow up together and then what happens is that these reapers who are the angels first they gather together the tares so we're talking about the sorting after death 
So you've got 55 million people a year rolling out of this world into, this, into the spiritual world. And survival of death is immediate, personal, and permanent. So people are rolling into the other world. And uh, what they do is they gather, they, they have to sort, they have to figure out who are the tares, you know, who, who are the weeds, and how do you tell them? What does Jesus say about how to tell people? It says, by their fruits, you, you will know them. You can tell the difference between tares and wheat. They look alike until they have fruit. But then you can see, oh, no, that's wheat. I can tell. And that, that's a tear. So this is what happens at the end of our lives. There's an examination about the fruit. And it says, gather first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. So now, does Scripture sort of waste its breath? Does it say a lot of <laughs> dumb, pointless things? Or is every little detail meaningful? It's very interesting that people get bundled. And that bundling, Swedenborg would say, has to do with the fact that people with a common love, you know, get brought together, whatever it is, people with a common understanding and point of view. There's a bundling. And the burning has to do with, the, um, with hell. It's not literal hellfire. It's not literal burning or fire. But it does have to do with love. All fire in Scripture has to do with love. It has to do with people who have that love of evil. If that's their primary love, that's what makes them a tear, a weed, uh, then they, hell is what it means by burning them. And that's first. It's interesting that that's first. And then gather the wheat into my barn. Well, wouldn't the barn be heaven? Wouldn't the wheat be good people? All right. So that's nice, except that most people wonder, I certainly do, wow, I wonder if I'm wheat or, or I'm a tear, you know, like we look alike until you get to the end of the show. So, so uh, you know, how is this going to work out for us after we die? What is the nature of the sorting process? So that's great. There's a sorting that goes on. And look at this story in just verse 47 in that same chapter. We read it just last week. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea. The kingdom of heaven. This is what it's talking about. Life after death. The kingdom of heaven mm -hmm. is like a dragnet. Cast and, into the sea. And gathered some of every kind. Yeah, everybody's rolling into the other world. Which, when it was full, they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. It's very interesting to me, and I might have commented on it before, that, that this time, it's the good who get processed first. With the tares, mm. it was the tares that got processed first. It's interesting. But in both cases, there's a separation and they get now this time, and it's the good that get gathered. This time they get gathered, and it's interesting they gathered into vessels, some some sort of containment. And in the other one, it was a barn. You know, they they're put in some safe place or something. Here's a, here's a place of containment, um, and the other, but cast the bad away. And then it says, so shall it be at the end of the age. Now you can take that, and it's it's not entirely wrong. I'd have to get into all the different meanings of the last judgment and everything. But for the purposes of this evening, it's, it's also accurate to think of this as that time of our passing into the spiritual world. This is the sorting that goes on uh, before we go to heaven or hell. So you see, there's a, there's a harvesting, then there's a processing, and then you end up in the barn or cast into the fire. So we live in this world 
and then we go to some place, might be a place where there's a great gulf fixed, and then we go either to heaven or we go to hell. This is the story that the scripture's telling, looking at it through a Swedenborgian lens. So, and it says right there in verse 49, doesn't it, that the, so shall it be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from among the just. And there when it's telling the interpretation, it tells it the tares way around, that the, that the wicked are removed first and cast them into a furnace of fire and they'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And he says, have you understand these things and stood these things? And they say, yes, uh, which always tickles me to yeah. no end. The, um, yes. Okay, so there's, there's again, so the, now let me ask you, if you were gathering fish, do you gather them and then leave them on the dock for say 400 years. Like, does it make, you know, if the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet gathering all these people, you got to process, that fish, you got to process them right away. You, you don't have time to hang around for a few days, take a week off, see how the fish are doing. You know, they'll all be bad fish by that point. Uh, the, the, the parable speaks to the fact that there's a processing immediately. If you think about it from a business standpoint, kind of a ludicrous thought, but imagine that you had a business that was wildly successful and you had 55 million new customers every year. Would you wait until that number's like a trillion to start processing those people? Man, 151,600 people a day rolling. You want to process them right now, like the fish, like let's get on this, you know? We've got to sort these people. They just came in. You got to get on it. I mean, I imagine there's quite a crush when, when you bring that, that, uh, those fish in. you got to deal with them now, you know, because some of them are useful and they can be deployed and, and, um, and all that. So, all right, uh, that's good fun. What else shall we read here? Um, mm. Okay, so these were, these were just some, some passages about sorting. There's one more. Let's go to John 15. So turn to the right, it's the fourth gospel there, John 15, and just want to read um, the first two verses there. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every mm. branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Isn't this kind of the same story? It's talking about fruit and being able to tell which is which from the fruit. And uh, so if you're bearing no fruit, that's taken away. But then what does he do with the ones that are bearing fruit? At the end of the verse there? Oh, just that, that it may bear more fruit. He prunes it. He prunes. Yeah, you get prunes. So unfortunately, those are the only two things on the menu, thrown <laughs> away or pruned. I, I would much prefer there be an option of just stay the way you are. You're just perfect the way you are. Uh, but it doesn't seem to work that way. And what is important about this for our topic tonight is that if you think about those analogies of the fish and the tares and the wheat, it just kind of sounds like some people are just bad, some are good. All you got to do is figure out who the bad ones are, who the good ones are, sort them out. You over here, you over there. 
Now, is that an arbitrary decision? Okay, it's based on whether you bear fruit. But so I was trying to bear fruit. Shut up, you know, and off you go. And, you know, is it some grotesque, unfair procedure? Is that what we're being told in Scripture? I don't think so. What you see there is that the Lord views everyone as a branch in himself. And he says, if, if a branch is not bearing fruit, it's taken away. If not, it gets pruned. If it's bearing fruit, pruned to bear more fruit. So what's the nature of that pruning and what's the nature of that sorting? How exactly does that sorting uh, take place? Well, we're in very, very good luck because Scripture actually talks about this. In fact, it talks about it at such length we couldn't possibly cover it in a 20-hour Bible study. Fear not, we're not going to attempt that this evening, good friends. But it's called the book of Revelation. This is one place. um, It's not the only one in Scripture. But the book of Revelation, at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, you see John on the Isle of Patmos. But in verse 10 of chapter 1, he already says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He's Mm -hmm. in the Spirit. He's not in the flesh. And then he has this long spiritual experience of the other world, and it repeats again and again that he was in a vision And in heaven, he saw this and that and the other, the whole book. And you never go back to this world. You don't see him afterwards. Uh, The whole thing is in the spiritual world. And what is the book about? Let me summarize it in three minutes. Is that a challenge, the book of Revelation? Let's see if we can summarize it in three minutes. Uh, uh, It's easy because there are four sets of seven. So at the very beginning, you have seven letters that invite all different kinds of people into this new paradigm. How am I doing? Am I doing okay with the time? Okay. Then there's a book that's sealed up, and only the Lamb can open it, the Lamb of God. Isn't that interesting? Only the Lamb can open it. And as each seal is taken off, there's more and more revelations. And that leads to seven trumpets being sounded, and there are more and more revelations as those seven trumpets are sounded. And that leads to seven bowls that are poured out, and more and more revelations go on as those bowls are poured out. So there's four sets of seven in the book. And you see from various points, let's look at chapter 9, verse... uh, That was the end of my summary. Uh, Chapter 9, and everything turns out great in the end. I forgot that part. And... Uh, toward the end, you get these people who are, um, who are, they attack the good, as we talked about last time, and they're cast down, they're cast in a lake of fire and brimstone. Um, and then there's a verse about let those who are filthy be filthy still, let those who are righteous be righteous still. still. And okay, everybody's set. Now this process is done. So the whole book is about assorting. The entire book is about that. And look at chapter 9, verses 20 and 21 here. But so this is after you've had a whole bunch of these seals and trumpets sounding and all this drama going on. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Interesting. That last four is very clearly the sort of core of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Right? Murder. I mean, the sorceries is a little different, but the sexual immorality, the thefts. uh, Isn't that amazing? Those are right out of the Ten Commandments. And so 
it's a weird way that it expresses itself, but it says the people who are not killed by these plagues for some reason didn't repent. Like the whole point was, hey, that was supposed to be for your benefit. You know, all these seals being opened, these trumpets blowing, the bowls pouring out, were supposed to turn you around. You're in this middle point, and it was supposed to turn you around, and it's a shame when it didn't. But look at chapter 11, verse 13, when another dramatic thing happens. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Oh, well, that was a good outcome. Like there was an earthquake and there were some people who actually went, oh, you know what? I'm going to go with Jesus instead. You know, they, they turned it around. Like some of the people in the book of Revelation uh, surprisingly don't repent, even though they're given the opportunity and even though these things are coming down. Those of you who were with us last time, we talked about Pharaoh and Moses and how Pharaoh is hit with these 10 plagues Bang, bang, bang. A lot of them are very similar to things in the book of Revelation. And yet Pharaoh did not turn it around. You'll see in the beginning of the story that he says a number of times, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then later on it says, the Lord hardened his heart. But Pharaoh did it first. Uh, um, And he ends up... So the whole story of Pharaoh and Moses is really set spiritually in this same great gulf because Moses is not in heaven yet. Pharaoh's not in hell yet. It's only at the end of the story that what Pharaoh represents ends up in the, in the um, Red Sea. And it's at the end of the story that Moses leads the children of Israel off to the uh, land of milk and honey, the holy land, meaning heaven. So this is a picture also of the upheaval that goes on. And there's every effort to get Pharaoh to turn it around, even though he's already pretty hard-hearted at the beginning. There are 10 or 11 attempts to get him to turn it around. You see what I mean? So what's going on here is not just simply, oh, you're a good fish, you're a bad fish. You're a good fish. You're based on what? Shut up. And they just throw him over. You know, that's not how it works. The, uh, it, every effort with love is being made to turn people around. And there's almost kind of a surprise in the text when people don't take the bait. <laughs> like, man, you know, we pounded you a bunch of times but you didn't even repent of this stuff because the idea is this is supposed to help you get to a point of choice where you say, well, no. And look at those other people. They got afraid and they gave glory to the God of heaven. They said, now they're acknowledging God. You know, they're, they're in a different state because of that earthquake that happened. All right. Uh, mm, so fun. All right, look at chapter 19 in Revelation. Uh, look at verse... 20, we read this last time. Now, at the end of this story of sorting, so we sent you seven letters, we opened seven seals, we blew the trumpet seven times, we uh, poured out the seven bowls, and then if you didn't take any of that, you know, if none of that turned you around, then this is what happens. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Yes, that's a picture of that eventual damnation. The damnation doesn't happen on day one or day two or day three. You go through 28 stages of trying to turn you around. If you're absolutely determined 
And the thing that he did in verse 19 to get him into the lake of fire was that he attacked the good, like we talked about last time. That's how you, that's the only way you get there. And look at chapter 20, verse 9. There's another little sort of judgment mentioned there. They went. And th these are people again. Uh, let's read verse 8. Verse 8. Uh, it's just in the middle of a sentence. But. Okay. <laughs> and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle. That's it. They're going to battle. They're going to fight the good. Okay. Whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. This is all in the spiritual world. He's seeing this in a vision. They surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So what are they doing? They're attacking the good. They're doing it again. You know, they're attacking the good. They're surrounding the camp of the saints and the holy city. And do they get very far? And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Oh, okay. Boom. Like you attack. It's important for your processing that you attack. You're cast down. The good are unharmed. Everybody's fine. So uh, that's the way the sorting goes. And there are many, 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 many efforts before that to get you turned around. I want to read Joel right now. Okay, this is going to be fun. Okay, so go to the middle of your Bible. You'll find roughly the Psalms or Isaiah there. We'll go to the right through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then I want to go Hosea, Joel. We're looking for Joel, the second of the minor prophets. And look at 3, verse 13 and 14. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Mm, see, this is what this is talking about. The harvest is this gathering, all these people pouring into the other world. The harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. And listen to this resonant phrase here. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That's what this great gulf is that's fixed between heaven and hell. It's a, doesn't it make sense that, of course, you'd have people go there and then you've got to sort out who belongs where and what people are really like inside. And only the Lamb is able to open that book and look on the seals because only the Lord knows all the states of our lives from birth to eternity, and that's the basis of our judgment. Nobody else can judge that. And you get multitudes, all these people. Now, you remember last time, I don't know if you remember that graphic of the, that the heavens were mountains, but also the deepest hells were mountains, and there were hills in between. Well, in between those hills and mountains of heaven and the hill, upside down hills and mountains of hell are these valleys. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. It is not as simple and mechanical as saying, you're a bad fish, you're a good fish. People are making up their own minds. It's the valley of decision. Mm. People are free and they're there and they're making decisions. Are you going this way or are you going that way? And what is happening while they're there? Are they just left alone? No, there's all sorts of efforts to intervene and to turn them around. We've seen an image of that in the miracles Back in Exodus, when I was talking about the story of Pharaoh and Moses, we talked about that in more detail another time. We've seen that in the book of Revelation, where all the, the 
seals, the trumpets, the bowls being poured out. Those are efforts to turn people around. And when you think about it, all these things in Scripture are about the Lord trying to turn people around. Uh, oh, for example, I don't know. Let's go to the New Testament to Luke. We're just jumping around right now. But uh, such an overwhelming bounty of great stuff in Scripture. Uh, chapter 15. It's about the lost sheep. And you have a hundred sheep and you lose one of them. You go out and you find that lost sheep. And then you gather your friends around. And you say, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. And what does it say in verse 7? I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. That's both about what goes on in this world, but also in the other world. How much joy is there when that, per, you know, when, the, when some people get, oh, they, they give glory to God, you know, they, it actually affects them like, oh, wait, I'm in the wrong, you know, every, every people don't slip accidentally down into hell. There's every effort to turn us around. The way that it puts us in the Old Testament, I love this. I want to read a few of these. They all say exactly the same thing, but it's just fun. Go back to the middle of your Bible, and if you get to Isaiah, turn to the right and go to Jeremiah. I want to go to chapter 7, because I was thinking about this image of the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets, what are they doing? They're always trying to turn us around. They're a little bit like those trumpets, like the, you know, they're trying to turn us around. And what does the Lord say about them? Chapter 7, verse 25. Since, this is what the Lord says. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yeah. So the Lord got up extra early <clears throat> to send you prophets. Now, here's another story in Scripture that I think has to do like Egypt is like our life in this world. And then the wandering in the wilderness is like that time in the valley of decision. And then you go to the Holy Land, you know. Uh, so isn't it interesting that it says since the day that you came out of Egypt, uh, the Lord has been sending all these prophets daily rising up early and sending them. Look at chapter 25 in the same book. Verses 3 and 4. From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. <laughs> and the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. Mm. And so what do they say in verse 5? They said, Repent now, everyone, of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Now, do you really suppose, friends, that this has nothing to do with your life after death, and this is not going to happen to you? That if you're on a bad path or whatever path you're on, that no one is going to come to you, God is going to forget, and he won't rise up early and won't send you a prophet to say, Turn from your ways. Turn from your ways, you know? 
and dwell in the land that the Lord has given you and your father forever and ever. Is that this world? Is that talking about the holy land? It's talking about heaven. The Lord is sending his prophets to try to turn us around. Look at 26, verse 5. Oh, look at verse 4. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded. <laughs> he just keeps getting up early and keeps sending those prophets, and, and you, you're, you're not listening. Look at chapter 32, and all of these have great context about turning your life around and stuff like that. Uh, look at verse 33. It's just been talking in verse 32 about all the evil of the children of Israel. Yes. And look at verse 33. And they have turned to me the back and not the face. Even though, though what? Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them. The Lord himself got out of bed early and taught. <laughs> Yet they have not listened to receive instruction. Yeah. So that's, if you want to go to hell, friends, and it's certainly on the menu, you're welcome to. What you do is every time the annoying Lord comes to you or sends a prophet, <laughs> turn your back. That's what you got to do. You just got to turn right around, ignore the noise, speak to the hand, you know, just the, the, that's the way to do it because he is not going to leave you alone. You're going to be a little bit hounded in the spiritual world. You have freedom. Multitudes in the valley of decision. It is perfectly possible to go to the lake of fire and brimstone if that's what, you know, turns your, you know, whatever, but... But uh, I would not recommend it. I think there's a better option to let the Lord turn you around. So you see what I mean? Uh, the Lord is trying to turn us around. Look at Jeremiah chapter 35. Verses 14 and 15. The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed... For to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. <laughs> and what else did you do, dear Lord? I have also sent to you all my servants, the prophets. And when did you do that? Rising up early and sending them, <laughs> saying, Turn now, everyone, from his evil way. Amend your doings and do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your father's. But you have not inclined your ear, nor obeyed me. Yeah. Now, do you think this is going to stop in the other world? Do you think the Lord's not going to bother? This is all about dwelling in the land forever. You know, the Lord is going to make every effort to turn us around. So just, just be ready for that when, when we die. The beauty of it is nobody slips off. It's not, oh, sorry, we lost you. You were just one of the 55 million. We lost track of you and you slipped off into hell while well, we weren't looking. It doesn't work that way. The Lord is reaching out to every single person. It's a dragnet. You know, you bring everybody into shore and you sit down and then you're in a valley of decision and you get to decide, am I going with the Lord? So that's what the Lord's doing. It's not just as mechanical as fish. The Lord is reaching out to us again and again and trying to turn us around. And uh, so that's what he's doing. Um, Oh, let's read uh, chapter 44. In Jeremiah. Read verse 4. Uh, 
Oh, and it says in verse 3, it speaks of their wickedness, which they've committed to provoke me to anger. They burned incense, they serve other gods, and so on. And verse 4, what does he say? However, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising, rising early, early and, and sending, sending them, them, saying, oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. Oh, but what do they do? But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness, to burn no incense to other gods. Yes. So you, you see what's going on here. The Lord is sending his prophets again. So the whole story of the Old Testament is about the Lord reaching out, reaching out, sending prophets, sending prophets. It's all about this valley of decision. We do some of that deciding here in this world. We do more deciding in the other world. And the Lord is constantly trying to turn us around. A similar story. Oh, let's, let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 3 real quick. Because there's another thing that bears on this here. Oh, it's been talking about, it talks, it uses this kind of shocking analogy uh, that talks about Judah and her sister. And it talks, talks about them as adulterous women. Uh, look at verse 8. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. Very obvious allegory. Go on. So it came to pass, through her casual harlotry, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. I don't think that's literal. Yes. Okay, next verse. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me now with her whole heart. For all this, so the whole point was to turn her around. You know, that's always the Lord's point. He's, he doesn't condemn. He's not ostracizing. He doesn't dismiss and cast down or something. And so it's sort of amazing. For all this, and what he means by all this, it's like, wait a minute. I, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven, you know. For all this, you didn't, I'm surprised you didn't turn around because I'm really bringing everything I've got. As she didn't turn to him with her whole heart. That's right. And, uh, okay, go through Ezekiel to the right, through Ezekiel and Daniel. And Hosea is the very first one there of the minor prophets. And I want to read chapter 7. Um... Let's pick up at the eighth verse. Oh, let's pick up at the seventh verse. That'd be good. Okay. They are all hot like an oven and have <laughs> devoured their judges. That's also that fire that it talks about. The hellfire. It's not talking about a physical fire outside of you. It's what's burning in your heart. Go on. All their kings have fallen. None among them calls upon me. This is what the Lord is saying. Is none of them called on me. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Unturned, a cake unturned. I, I don't know. I love that. Go on. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. For all this. For all, it's amazing. For all this, they don't seek the Lord. 
So, I mean, you got to be, you really got to put your heart into it. You know, if you're in that valley of decision, there's going to be a lot of attempt to, to turn us around. And what he says is that for all that, you know, they're going through all these trouble. The whole point of all that trouble is not condemnation. It's not punishment. It's just trying to turn us around. That's, and, and the Lord is surprised when we don't do it, but he knows that we have our freedom. That's one of the bases of the whole things, the whole thing. So uh, look at Matthew. Turn to the New Testament to Matthew chapter 21. I saw this story in the same light. Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 28. This is Jesus speaking. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go, work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. In the old King James, he repented and mm -hmm. went. Yes. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Yeah, the one who said, I'm not going, and then went, is doing the will of the Father, right? Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you and that... he's speaking to the chief priests and, you know, the most sort of supposedly in charge of the religion and sacred people in the country. Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And there was a second wave. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And in the Old King James says, when the time of the fruit drew near. And uh, do you see in the context of tonight, the wheat and the tares grow up till the end and they bear fruit. You know, the time of harvest, the end of our lives, when that fruit. So the time of the fruit draws near. So I think this has application as well to this state that we're talking about after you pass into the other life. Go on. Interesting. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Now that's a good way to handle it. You're like if the prophet, if he rises up early and sends you the prophets, just abuse them. You, you'll be fine. Yes. Go on. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now this is obviously a parable about Jesus coming into the world, who we believe was God himself come into the world. And so uh, he's come in this human form to try to turn people around. It's the ultimate effort to try to turn people around. Go on. Um, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they answer... He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Yes. And then he picks this up and he says in verse 43, 
the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth its fruits. Mm -hmm. And they perceived that he spoke about them. Uh, even that story occurred to me as, you know, you might read it as a judgmental story, but if you see that this is the mercy of the Lord, sending people to say, is there fruit? Is there fruit? Because he, he wants the fruit. He wants to see fruit for our sake. Every branch that does not bear fruit is taken away. Every branch that does bear fruit is pruned so that it will bear more fruit. He's reaching out, trying to get them to turn around. In Matthew 23, we don't have time to read it tonight, but there's a long harangue against the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus says, and he's just raining fire on them. It sounds so critical. You know, they're evil. They're like whitewashed sepulchers. They're, they, you know, you, you should clean the inside of yourself and not, uh, you know, inside they're full of extortion and excess. You're serpents, your generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell, he says in verse 33. And look at what he says in verse 34 after this long harangue. It's amazing. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets. I, <laughs> do you think he got up early? I think he probably got up early. <laughs> and he sent them prophets. That's right. Wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Yes, unless in the interest of time, skip down to verse 37. What does he say at the end of this seemingly incredibly harsh diatribe against these people? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, your house is left to you desolate. Do you hear the love in that statement, in, right in the harangue? He's saying, I'm trying to gather you under my wing. I'm trying to turn you around, you know. And there's a stubbornness there of like, no, I refuse. You know, I'm, I'm set with what I've got. I'm not going your way. And they will not turn it around. These stories apply on a number of different levels. What I've been talking about tonight is the personal level. And uh, so does this give you some idea, friends, what happens in this sorting after death? What have we read tonight? That survival of death is immediate, personal, and per permanent. We go into that other life. When it talks about the day of judgment and so on, yes, there were big cataclysmic events we can talk about another time. But for each individual, there's a time of judgment. It is appointed men once to die and then the judgment. And the nature of the judgment, interestingly, is not someone looking cross with folded arms and saying, you're evil, down you go. Uh, it is every effort to turn people around. If you're good like Lazarus was, whoom, carried by angels into the bosom of Abraham. Boom. Doesn't, doesn't take long at all. But if you're evil, you know, if you're really determined, the only way the rich man got, got to hell in that story was that he had to turn down all this intervention, many, 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 many interventions, rising early, sending the prophets, trying in every possible way to turn people around. It may look like punishment. It may look harsh. But it's every effort on the part of love to turn things around. And the only time that love, I mean, love never gives up, but the process is resolved when there's an attack on the good. 
Let's look at the very end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22. I alluded to this earlier, but after the end of this long, dramatic story of the book of Revelation, it comes to this verse, 22, verse 11. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Yes, two categories of bad, two categories of good. The point is, there's a time, you know, the Lord will try 28 times to turn everything around. But if you're sure about it, and Swedenborg tells of stories where people in that, were in that valley of decision for a thousand years or more, you know, uh, making up their minds. But when you get to the end of the process, then it's like you, for, for your sake, for everybody's sake, it will eventually rest. It'll have an outcome. You know, it, it's not going to stay in suspense forever. You can't just sit on the fence forever. Uh, it, it, we have to make a choice. And the Lord desperately wants us to choose life. That's the whole purpose of Scripture. That's what he's talking about all the time. Look at his effort, and I'll close with this. Look at his effort at the end of his life when he himself is being tortured and killed, a criminal's death on the cross. The Lord is still reaching out to a criminal who's next to him. You know, it's amazing. It doesn't stop. And there's still hope. That last point, he turns to the Lord. He said, remember me in your kingdom. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So that's the Lord's will. We have it in our power to to thwart him or reject him or attack the good or whatever. We're going to really have to put our hearts into it, friends, if we really insist on going to hell because there's going to be a lot of efforts. And so to me, this is fascinating to see that there's actually a lot of evidence about what happens after we die, that there will be all these different ways. If we're Moses, we'll be interacting with pharaohs. If we're Pharaoh, we'll be interacting with Moses. You know, there'll be a lot of interaction between people and, and the Lord rising early and sending prophets to try to turn us around because where he wants us is in that holy land forever. He wants us together with him in heaven and uh, that's his, his favorite outcome. So that's what he's looking for. So that's a little, little bit on the uh, world of spirits, the valley of decisions, this area of sorting after death. In conclusion, in this life and after we die, we are encouraged in every way to choose heaven. Thank you, friends. Do you want to join me in a closing prayer? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for your unending compassion, for your wisdom, for your efforts to reach out to us and to make sure that we're clear about whatever our choices are, Thank you for turning us around. Thank you for that joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Thank you for rising early and sending the prophets to us to give us a message to turn things around. We thank you, Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with you. We look forward, Lord, to that nearer presence of you. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, so that we welcome those prophets when they show up. <laughs>